Peace be with you on this fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was still in seminary back in Missouri, I chose to preach at Big Church St. John Ellisville. As a seminarian, I got to, I got to do a gig there one night, and Chuck's uh, contemporary there at uh, St. John Ellisville, the sound engineer, is fixing me up with the microphone and everything, and somehow we got on the, on the topic of prayer, and, and this guy says, yeah, you know I, I, you know, I don't like these prayers from the hymn book or the service folder, you know, I think, I think prayer should be from the heart, you know, I think it should just be, you know, that kind of thing, and I said, hmm, I said, well, I said, what about the Lord's Prayer? I said, that's written, it's in our service and that's from God. You don't think it's from the heart? Uh, he didn't like that answer. <laughs> he kind of grumbled at me. But, you know, his thing was that, no, prayer shouldn't be written. You should just get out there and just do it off the cuff. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, a few years ago I met Pizza Caboose up here on Highway 99 with my family and kids and, and a church family, all their kids, and you know, of course, as the pizza comes out, right, I'm asked, Pastor, would you please do the prayer? Oh, sure, of course, I'll do the prayer. And, you know, not having a hymn book with me or anything like that, I just did one of those prayers from the heart that the guy in Missouri was talking about, right? And I think it was Evie Vincent, Carol Vincent's granddaughter, was shocked. She said, Pastor, what kind of a prayer is that? Where, where, how come you don't do the prayer like you do in, in church? I said, you mean those lofty prayers where I lift up my hands and, oh, Lord, we thank Thee for the numerous gifts that Thou bestowest on us? Yeah. I said, well, I mean, come on, we're at a restaurant. I mean, we're just, just going to give a simple... I mean, you just can't win, right? <laughs> but these experiences and many more have caused me to reflect on the, on the prayer of the church, the general prayer of the church that we encounter in our hymn book, for the divine service with Holy Communion and also in the Lutheran service book. They've been updated a little bit, but it's still the general prayers of the church that we use here. On the one hand, the general prayer of the church seems rote, not from the heart, because it was written long ago by other people. On the other hand, if the things which we ask for in this prayer are valid and meaningful to us today, well, then it, it still comes from the heart. This prayer is an outstanding part of our liturgy in that it shows our active exercise as a priesthood of believers in Jesus Christ. If we were to have a service here today with all the parts in it except the prayer of the church, we would feel like something's missing. Worship is not complete without some such lofty, pure and acceptable form of prayer. After all, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, I encourage you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all people, for kings and for all that are in power, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This prayer is lofty in that it rises above small, local, and selfish desires. The general prayer of the church reveals the true mind of the church. It's directed to God in humility and trust, and its sincere purpose is to be heard by Him. It may seem long. 
we get to it, and I begin speaking it, and you might think, oh, here's that prayer that goes on forever. I was at a district prayer retreat on the coast this last week, and I'm speaking with a gentleman who was attending and talking about this prayer. He brought the subject up. I didn't even bring it up, and he said, oh, I remember when I was a kid, that general prayer, oh, it just, it just went on forever. <laughs> but it's not as long as the free-form prayer of the non-liturgical churches, such as the non-denominational or community churches, Jill and I have attended several of those services over the years where the prayers usually seem to begin with someone on the stage saying, Lord, we just want to, and it goes on and on, 15 minutes or more. But it might have been that way or something like it in Martin Luther's time before the Reformation. By, medieval, by the medieval time, the prayers of the church had degenerated into an hour-long thing or more, depending on the size of the congregation but it turned into an hour-long series of commemorations for the dead and invocation to the saints. And, you know, there are many saints. <laughs> so you can imagine what it, was, what it may have been like to be standing the whole time in some great cathedral or little parish church with your kids about you clamoring, trying to, trying to pick them up, and they're begging for something to eat, and this prayer goes on for an hour. The Reformation restored the general prayer of the church to what it is today. A short, snappy prayer compared to what it was. You may remember the famous Joseph Heller novel, Catch-22, or the movie where Martin Balsam plays uh, Colonel Cathcart, the uh, overbearing Air Force wing commander in Italy during World War II. Colonel Cathcart orders the base chaplain, Chaplain Taplin, to write short, snappy prayers in the local newsletter because... There's an army chaplain back in the States who's writing catchy little prayers for the Saturday Evening Post. And he's getting a lot of popularity. And that's all Colonel Cathcart wants. He, wants. he wants short, snappy prayers so he can get into the Saturday Evening Post. Short, snappy prayers. That's what the general prayer is, or that's what it started out in the first century. Shortly after the time of Jesus and the apostles, the church services were called Office of the Word. I'd say it in Latin, but my Latin is terrible. But in the Roman world at the time, church was called Office of the Word. And the first part was for everyone who attended, those baptized and those who hadn't been baptized yet. It was a time for hearing and learning the scriptures and the faith. The second part was Holy Communion, which the unbaptized were not permitted to attend. So you'd show up at someone's house or a place of meeting for church and there would be readings from the copies of the letters from Paul and a reading from one or more of the Gospels. And then there was a sermon by a bishop or a deacon and then a few, a few brief prayers for the unbaptized who were there to learn. It, that took up for, to a year to do that, by the way. Then after the unbaptized pupils were dismissed... The service continued with communion and the sharing of a meal, along with a few more brief prayers for the faithful, the church, the empire, the government, the poor, orphans, widows, and those in prison. So you see, it's very similar to what we have today. The general prayer is also a sacrificial act in that it's a prayer we offer to God. And I face the altar when I do it, and I speak the prayer on your behalf. It's like the collect 
or the collect that I, that's in a, the other part of the service where I gather the needs and all your anxieties and all your concerns. I gather them and I offer them up to God in that short, snappy little prayer. Now, looking at this prayer more closely, we see it begins by, uh, in fact, if you go to page 110, we're going to, in the hymn book, we're going to use that form of the general prayer on page 110. So we're just going to go through it little by little here. You know, page 110, the first one that says general prayer there. It starts by acknowledging that God is almighty and merciful. It could go on with more things, all the attributes of God and the things that He is, but again, this is a short, snappy prayer, remember? So it's kept to two attributes, almighty and merciful. We thank God right away for His goodness and tender mercies because unlike our earthly fathers who could be quite hard on us, even in their love for us, God deals with us tenderly. Even though because of our sin we deserve harsh treatment for the, cor for the correction of our error and just repayment by God, which includes death, and I've already been over that the last couple of weeks, He relents on account of Christ and we live forever which is a most tender mercy indeed. We thank God for giving us Jesus as a gift, which is highlighted during the Christmas and Epiphany seasons of the church. And we thank God for revealing to us that this happened through, you know, it's revealed to us in His Word, the Bible. God revealed it was His plan to come to earth and be born as one of us, to carry out his plan of grace, which includes dying for us so that our sin would be cleared and we would be given life forever. And many other things, of course, too numerous to mention here. But we ask God to implant his word in us, which is much stronger than just having it in our brain as information. We want God's word implanted in us, like something growing in us, which doesn't sound good because we do get things growing in us that aren't supposed to be there and cause health problems. But when it's God's Word implanted on us, in us, it gives abundant life that leads to everlasting life. We ask for this so that in good and honest hearts, rather than the bad and dishonest hearts we usually have, you know, because we, we always want things for ourselves and we want things to go our way, we may keep God's Word in us so that it would grow the fruit of continuing patience and doing well. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? We want to have patience, and we want to do well. In this prayer, we ask God to rule and govern Christians everywhere who are the church universal, not a particular denomination of Christianity. But notice we pray that we, we would be kept intact and sustained in pure doctrine of God's saving word. We pray for Christians and their pastors and ministers everywhere, even though some have errors in their doctrine. Nevertheless, there's nothing we can do about that except stay true to what we have learned and keep it sound. God will take care of the rest. What we're asking is, or what we're asking for the goal of pure doctrine is to have our faith strengthened, our love increased toward all people, regardless of race, nationality, or belief and that more would be saved and added to God's kingdom. We ask God to send missionaries out into the field to do this. That's the traditional way of the Christian church in the last few centuries, but it can also mean every one of us. You and I are laborers in the field, 
There's a harvest ready out there. There's reaping to be done. People out there don't know about Christ, and how will they hear unless they hear it from you? We ask God to sustain those He's already sent out, which again includes you and me. Notice we ask that the word of reconciliation be told out there everywhere in all the world. Sure, there are many people who don't care a thing about God and don't think about any future thing in their lives other than the next few hours. But there are also people out there who want to know where they stand with God. That's where the word of reconciliation is needed. We are reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. We're made right with Him. We're no longer God's children of wrath because of sin. We're His dear children and heirs of all that is His. And that's what people need to know who are wondering where they stand with God. We pray for our leaders and government, starting with the president, then the Congress, the governor of our state, and those who make our laws. If you remember, Jesus tells Pontius Pilate he would have no power at all if it hadn't been given to him from above. And Jesus is not saying that about himself. He's saying that about Pilate. He's saying to Pilate, you wouldn't have any power if it hadn't been given to you from above. Of course, Pilate just kind of looks at him like, what? What are you saying? God works peace and stability for people through believers and unbelievers in government. So we pray for them all, regardless of party affiliation or political views. We ask God to give them grace to rule after His good pleasure. In other words, to have some humility and not be an overbearing egomaniac and such. Also that our officials can carry out their work effectively to punish those who do wrong so that the rest of us can live in some peace and order. You know, everyone has the right to some peace and quiet, right? <laughs> You'll notice the Lutheran hymnal was printed also for the churches in England. And it was, also, uh, it was only in print for about 10 years when Queen Elizabeth II assumed the throne. So if you have a copy where you pray for His Majesty the King of the British Commonwealth, you know you've got one printed before 1952. Could be a collector's item. Because most of them you find it says Her Majesty the Queen. But now these all have to get changed back to His Majesty the King. We also ask God to change the hearts of those who hate the church who hate us on account of Jesus so that they would no longer be hateful towards us but even join us. Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been something if Madeline Murray O'Hare had a change of heart and joined the church? I know that was a while ago, but it didn't happen. Her son, uh, her son came to saving faith in Christ, but sadly he had to disown his own mother due to her relentless verbal attacks on the church and, and, and his faith. If you don't know who Madeline Murray O'Hare was, she was America's premier atheist in the 1960s and, early, and 70s. Or how about Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood? She hated God, hated the church, hated men, hated family and everything it stood for. Yet some Christians defend her organization as doing good for people. Well, I... I guess it depends on what kind of person. If you're in the womb, you're in great danger around her facilities. Or take Bill Nye the science guy who hates the church 
and makes no apologies for telling Christian parents they're hurting their children by teaching them creation from the Bible. We pray for adversaries like these even though, as history has, has shown, they may never change their minds and join the church. We pray for people in all kinds of trouble. And interestingly, we acknowledge that if they or we are in trouble, that we accept it as God's will. Not always an easy thing to accept, especially when we hear the church's message over and over again being one of God's love, compassion, and as we heard earlier, tender mercy. This is an area which we shouldn't attempt to completely understand or over-spiritualize. God is hidden in these things, and we just don't know what is His will sometimes and what is a simple, terrible accident or the pre-existing problem of sin's corruption in the body that makes things go terribly wrong or even deadly. Nevertheless, this is how this prayer has been handed down to us from those who went before us under all kinds of adversity. You can see a humble sense of accepting that it's God's will rather than complaining, like David. And towards the end of this prayer is a confession of sin. Even though confession comes in other parts of the service, including the Kyrie, which we sing, we do it again here. Please, Lord, don't remember the sins of our youth. That's a good one, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe the sins of our adulthood are worse. <laughs> But we plead for forgiveness here along with deliverance from all kinds of things including unsound doctrine, you know, the kind that manipulates people to do the will of wolves in sheep's clothing. We ask God to spare us from war, plagues, famines, disasters, and from an evil death. And I've been asked about that one. What about this evil death thing? As Christians, we don't see death the way the unbelievers do. We don't fear it. We actually look forward to it because of the promise from God that we will live even though we die. But what I believe this evil death refers to is the kind of death we don't want. We don't want to be murdered at the hands of some demonic crazed person or tortured to death or anything like that. We want to go to sleep in our beds or our lazy boy in our advanced age and wake up at the resurrection. We pray the crops will be fruitful for all to enjoy in their proper season. We pray for our schools, that they will, be, that they will nourish the faith of the young. And we must also pray for our state schools and that the church has no say or influence in what gets taught there. And our children are at the mercy of others who in some cases haven't a single clue as to what God has to say about life. We ask God to protect all people in their vocations on land and sea, and you would think air, as in 1941 there were plenty of airplanes flying around by then, but this prayer is very old and perhaps the editors just overlooked updating it. I include air, however, because many of us have family and friends who are pilots, air crew members, and so forth, and they need safety and protection as well. And we pray to God to bless the pure arts of useful knowledge. You have a friend or family member who deals or dabbles in the occult, seances, palm readings, tarot cards, crystals, alchemy, astrology, all that kind of stuff. You pray for them, but not their arts. 
And we end the general prayer with specific prayers which express the thoughts and needs of our time. They're not selfish or small. We need surgery sometimes. We need healing. We need recovery. We need function. But we're all in this together, and we bear each other's burdens as the church. And so again, when I read the names of those we pray for and their needs, it shows the true mind of the church. We want to live and be restored together. Wow, I've gone way, on, way longer here than the actual prayer itself. So, I should stop before someone says, oh boy, that Pastor Don, he just goes on forever. I don't know. So, may the prayer of the church be yours, and as we pray of one body and mind of Christ. Amen.